are listening to The Depression Session at 99.1 FM Downtown Radio. Each week, we'll have a new guest tell the story of their depression. I'm your host, Laura Milkins, and thank you for joining us on The Depression Session. Just a note for my listeners, I want to make sure you understand that this is a show about depression, and some of the content can be triggering, so please take care of yourself if something on the show brings up difficult feelings, and seek professional help if you need it. Thank you. Hello and welcome to the Depression Session on Downtown Radio. Today we have with us in the studio Al Levin. Al has been an urban public school administrator for 18 years. He's married and has four children that range in age from 5 to 10 years old. He suffered a major depressive disorder that was quite debilitating for four to six months. Trigger warning, this episode will discuss suicidal ideation. We'll be right back with Al, but first let's talk about love. This is the time of year when I think about family and friends. I have teaching full-time and I get wrapped up in that. And I sometimes almost, I, I almost ignore, <laughs> ignore those other parts of my life. And then suddenly it's Christmas time and I have a month off and it's, it's a time full of, you know, family and connection and friends and cheer. And in last year, I was not doing great with my depression and felt oppressed by all that. <laughs> to be honest, it felt like I had to push through it rather than it being all joyful. This year has been a totally different experience. I had everybody come to my house family and friends and Christmas morning, we made stockings for even all the grown-ups and open presents. And it felt real. And I felt love. And there's a difference between knowing you are loved and actually feeling love. And at that time, I felt it. I, I just felt the warmth of what it was to be surrounded by friends and family. And I'm not sure what the difference is between knowing that you're loved and having people around who you who love you and actually being able to feel it. And I feel like depression plays a big part in that, that that's for me, one of the worst things about depression is not being able to feel loved, not being able to actually feel it on a deep level where I can connect with the fact that these people, these friends, these family members really love me you know, my boyfriend really loves me. And that it's, it was really a, a magical time this year. And it makes me sad for how much of my experience last year was coated with this gray. <laughs> and and the, the, the three years previous to that just like coated a little bit that I could be through the motions of loving the people around me and being loved by them. But the feeling of it was missing. So I just want to honor how beautiful that is and how fortunate I feel that this year was a year when my depression wasn't part of my Christmas experience. And I'll just end on a quote from Hafiz. I wish I could show you when you are lonely or in darkness, the astonishing light of your own being. Today we have with us in the studio, Al Levin. Al has been an urban public school administrator for 18 years. He's married and has four children that range in age from five to 10 years old. He suffers from a major depressive disorder that was quite debilitating for four to six months. Hello, Al. Welcome to the depression session. 
Hi, thanks so much for having me. It's great to have you here. So what's new with you? What do you want to share? Well, you know, recently, actually, I've been trying to do a lot of advocating for mental illness, supporting others. Uh, I have been trained and go out and speak for NAMI. Uh, so I do some public speaking around anti-stigma work, as well as telling my own story publicly, which has been pretty therapeutic and rewarding for me. I also, uh, I have a blog. It's allevin18.wordpress.org. And, oh, I'm sorry, that's .com. allevin18.wordpress.com. And let's see, I've been doing a lot of Twitter work. Uh, I tweet at allevin18. So really trying to do as much work around mental illness as possible. I'm, in fact, I'm even trying, uh, I'm considering a career change possibly even uh, wow. into the field of mental illness. It's just trying to figure out how to, how to navigate my way into that system, not having much experience other than my own personal experience and advocating and research that I've done. Great. And, and that's something that I've discovered when doing this show is that almost every one of my guests through their experience of depression, find something that works with them and in one way or another shares it. Yeah, I, th I think it's therapeutic to help others and to, to share your own story, I think goes a long way for helping to uh, minimize and hopefully eventually eliminate the stigma. <laughs> That's my personal goal. I don't think anyone should have to feel bad about how they feel. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but there is, there is, there is in, and I, I think American culture in particular, I remember there's a book that's called The Terrible Oppression of Optimism in America and how in our culture, being up, being happy is almost a, a requirement. <laughs> and yeah, a requirement. And I, I wonder how many people only share that side. Yeah. I know Facebook is all about like, everybody's great. We're all doing really well here. <laughs> right. It seems to be the appearance at times, right? Like yeah. that's the piece people share on Facebook. That's the piece people talk about openly. But then uh, when they're having challenging times, those are usually hidden, masked, and not talked about. Yeah. On that note, Al, tell us the story of your depression. So my depression occurred three years ago, approximately. And, you know, I would say I, I went through, uh, before that, probably two years prior to that, I went through a minor depression where I started taking some medication. I was in a new job role. I think it was a very stressful role. Um, I didn't feel like I was set up for success very well. Mm. And so I started taking some medication from my family doctor, saw a therapist, and felt like I had recovered pretty well and was able to manage at work and get by. I then asked for a voluntary demotion because at the time uh, I had been promoted as a principal. And so I was working as a principal. I had a five-year-old, a three-year-old, and two newborns at home, never saw my family, um, was working just so much that after two years, I asked for a voluntary demotion. And then I worked as an assistant principal. And from there, the year seemed all right. You know, looking back on it, I wonder if I was ever fully recovered. 
so I survived a year as an assistant principal. The principal who I was working with ended up leaving, and we had a new principal. My second year back as an assistant principal, I really hit it off with him um, on a personal and professional level and really admire the, the principal. And I had a great job review, and then for whatever reason, soon thereafter, so in October, uh, I started to really realize that my body was feeling quite different, and I was worried that I was going back into a depression, and this one hit hard and hit fast. I remember sitting uh, in the kitchen of some friend's house with my wife. It was her friend's. And our family was over for Thanksgiving, so it was uh, November. And I sat at the kitchen counter and really did not talk much at all. And it was it was a crazy, weird feeling. I could tell that I wasn't engaging with people, and I couldn't force myself to. And I'm really a, typically a pretty outgoing person. I knew my wife was also getting frustrated because we'd come home and she'd be like, you know, you aren't even talking to anybody. She didn't really understand what was going on. Um, And like I said, I I crashed pretty hard. I started seeing a psychiatrist. I got back on some medication, started seeing a therapist so I could have some talk therapy. And I ended up taking five days off of work. No, I'm sorry. I took 10 days off of work, two weeks. And when I look back on it, that was probably the worst two weeks I could have had to have two weeks of unstructured time. And I would make lists of things I was going to do the next day. I was going to clean the bathroom. I was going to do some laundry. I was going to get on the elliptical. And I couldn't do any of it. And I'd sit on the couch. I loved, not loved, I didn't love anything at the time, but I I would hide out in my bedroom close the bedroom door and try to take naps for like three hours at a time. And I couldn't sleep at all. So I'd roll around, but I didn't want to get out of bed because that was my safe spot. I didn't have to deal with anybody or anything. After that, I tried to go back to work, knew it wasn't working. You know, I would hold myself together at work, barely, I think. I'd get home, manage with my kids, but not really in a good way and then and in the evening I would have all out uncontrollable crying bouts with my wife I started having suicidal thoughts in general went back to the therapist um, to my psychiatrist I'm sorry and told him I was having suicidal thoughts and I said you know could this be the medication and his response was yeah it could be the medication or it could be your depression So he upped my medication. My suicidal thoughts became more detailed, more planned out. Um, I remember sitting in front of the bathroom mirror, luckily just with my finger, but shaped like a gun, figuring out exactly how I would shoot, what angle I would shoot myself at so that I would make sure I died because I had read an article, I don't know if it's true or not, but about a person who shot himself through the head and it went in one temple, out the other, and he survived. So I did not want that to happen. Um, And then I'd start crying, thinking like, what the hell am I doing? I found myself doing an internet search, and the very first website I came to showed different ways of killing yourself, how much pain it would cause, and how quickly you would die. And I just like slammed the laptop shut, thinking, I can't believe I'm doing this. 
eventually when I came up with an actual plan of how I was going to shoot myself after contemplating many ideas of ways I could do it almost like in a double way so that if one method didn't work, the other one certainly would. Cause if I was going to go through with it, I didn't want to survive and be maimed. You know, and I always said I couldn't do it because of my family, but I understand now I've been there uh, to the point where you be- feel such a burden and such pain that, that I understand why people have done it even when they say they couldn't because of family. I had thought out a, a well-thought-out plan. I had means to a gun, and that's when I got really scared. One night I actually dreamt about the very plan. I told my wife and my sister, I need more help. I'm really, really scared. And I brought them both to my psychiatrist appointment and shared um, at the psychiatrist. And he was a psychiatric PA, and my sister didn't really like him because he was very wishy-washy and not very supportive. Because even at that point when I was like, look, I need more help, and my sister and my wife were there to help talk for me, and he was still wishy-washy, but we decided I was going to take more time off of work, as difficult as that sounded to me. And I ended up checking myself into a three-week partial hospitalization program. And that just felt to me um, like a relief, like, okay, I have a plan, and I am going to get better, and I am going to focus on me. Going and checking myself in there was very surreal. Um, Like I said, I was an outgoing person, consider myself pretty happy, and never imagined myself checking myself into a partial hospitalization program for recovery of depression. was just outside of my scope of anything I would have imagined. So it was very surreal. I was really thankful that my wife was there at the intake. One piece of, one suggestion I gave when I left, I told them, you know, I know it's not possible for everybody, but if anybody, if if people have a loved one to bring to an intake meeting, they should do that. I mean, they are talking to people at their lowest level, some going through psychotic pieces where, you know, who knows if they can answer the questions properly, who knows if they want to answer, if they're hearing voices or if they're self-medicating. Yet after this two-hour intake meeting, they're giving you drugs and a new plan and giving you a diagnosis. Um, So that was all interesting. Three weeks, it gave me structure. It gave me a lot of learning. I've done a lot of personal research around depression. And when I got out, I felt like I was really on the road to recovery. And that, that program, by the way, a partial hospitalization program, I was at home in the evenings. I would go from about nine to three. So again, it gave me some really good structure, some great learning opportunities. Meeting with other people going through the same thing was incredibly helpful. I actually blog again at allevin.wordpress.com, allevin18.wordpress.com about support groups and how incredible I have found a support group to, to be. So when I got out, I, I let my boss know, hey, I am not fully recovered. Uh, I am way better. I am able to work or I wouldn't be here. And my boss was incredibly supportive. I was very lucky to have the boss I do. He was very supportive. 
he wanted, uh, you know, to take on some of my roles if he had to, to ease me back in. So that was incredibly helpful. I continued with a men's support group. If I go to a support group still three years out and feeling great, I still go every other week to a men's depression support group. Like I said, I blog about the support group. Um, I think it's so helpful um, to be in a support group, to be able to talk to people who can relate to what you've been through. I don't think um, anybody can really understand a major depressive disorder unless you've been there, unless you've been through it. Uh, you know, even therapists, and I think I've maybe offended some, I do, I believe strongly in therapy. I don't think they can understand how it feels to be in a depression unless you've been in that deep, dark place. And I don't ever want anybody to be in that deep, dark place, which is why I think I've become such an advocate. I wouldn't want my worst enemy to be in the place I was at. So, like I said, I still go to faceitfoundation.org an amazing organization here in the Twin Cities that supports men with depression. I think if people can find a support group that is narrowed as much as possible, it really helps for me to be with men who have gone through depression and anxiety is incredible. The support group at my partial hospitalization program was great, but it was a lot more difficult to relate to all the people there such as a 22-year-old bipolar woman or a much older woman who you know has different types of issues than me. So to be in a men's depression and anxiety support group has been incredible. And I've actually gone out with faceitfoundation.org to um, promote their foundation. Uh, I went back to the partial hospitalization program I was in and presented to staff with the founder, Mark Meyer, so that I could share with them this uh, support that I thought was phenomenal that people who finish a, a partial hospitalization program could then join. And so, yeah, that's, you know, I mentioned a career change. I would love to work for a community mental health organization somehow because I think there need to be more supports for people. I think there's a lot of changes we can do in legislation to make sure that the service providers are paid, you know, what they should be so that they can get some high quality professionals in the field, more high quality professionals in the field, more, more support for people within the communities. So that's kind of the, the type of work I want to do. And, you know, one of the, my most recent blog post that I just posted uh, last night revolves around hope. So I think if there's one thing I would say to people who are trying to recover right now, I think having that hope is critical. It's an essential piece of recovery um, to have that hope, to know you can get better, you will get better, and things will change. I mean, I look back and these past three years have been so amazing with my kids and my wife and the work I've been doing around advocacy around mental illness that I think like, wow, I came really close to taking my life 
and and now I'm in a, in this great place. And I think others need to understand that they can do that too. And you have got to have a glimmer of hope. And that's what I would share with uh, you know people who have relatives or friends who are going through depression. Make sure they understand that there is hope. There are resources out there. They can get better. They will get better. And as they say, you know, suicide is a permanent solution to a temporary problem. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's the wrong way to go, no matter how down you feel. Great. Al, thank you so much for your story. I It's spooky, some of the parallels in your story, actually, to my father. He was, he when he moved to our hometown of Pentwater, Michigan, he was the principal at our school. Really? Yeah. And I was a newborn. And that was actually a really good time for him. But he started to sink into alcoholism. And when I was about 10, took a, a voluntary leave. He'd become superintendent at that point, but he took a voluntary wow. leave. And he actually did go so far as to get a gun and try to shoot himself, but he couldn't find the bullets. He had a problem with drinking, so there was a whole other separate thing. But I know depression was where everything started. Wow, yeah. I mean, they say uh, a lot of addictions, um, people with addictions of drug or alcohol, oftentimes are self-medicating. And really, there's an underlying issue of depression. And, you know, although the numbers sometimes when I look at them seem kind of lower than I would think. Mm -hmm. My therapist told me, and I would agree, you know, you go to the corner bar and half the people drinking themselves under the table there are depressed and they aren't getting the support they need and they aren't being identified as people who need support. And I feel like your story is what the best case scenario of what can happen. You know, that, that like my dad's story almost being replayed 40 years later with a much better set of resources. Right. Yeah. I think, I think uh, looking for the resources, getting the resources is so important. Before I went into the partial hospitalization program, I invited two friends over my two best friends. (laughs) And I said, here's what I'm going through and I need your help. And they didn't know how to help me. That's another piece Mm -hmm. I, uh, I posted on my blog about, creating a structure for support and also how to help others who are going through depression because a lot of people want to help and don't know how to help. My wife didn't know how to help. She came to a couple of my talk therapy sessions to to try to learn how to help and I had invited her along and it is such such a challenging illness. Yeah, there's a wonderful Brene Brown video and talk online about empathy that I have found incredibly illuminating and useful, which is, it's it's done with little cartoon characters, but there's someone at the bottom of the well, depression, and there's someone at the top of the well looking down, and she's trying to illuminate, like, what what is actual empathy? And standing at the top of the well saying, oh, sorry, it looks terrible, is is not helpful. And, you know, come on up, you can just come on up, is not helpful. But having somebody get down there with you and say, I know how you feel. Yeah. I see where you are. Do you want to just hang out here for a while together? 
And not that the person needs to get depressed with you, but that they need to meet you where you are and be with you. Yeah. And I think a lot of times it's just being there to to listen, right? Let people know that you are there to listen. And if you aren't able to talk, they're there for you anyhow. Um, You know, I told my friends, just send me a hopeful text message once in a while. Let me know you're thinking about me. Invite me out for a cup of coffee, but don't do it with a whole group of guys because I don't want to associate with a whole group of guys. Um, The other thing I did to help support myself was the night before going to my intake meeting was my first night at faceitfoundation.org. I had heard about that support group and I went to a men's support group. I opened up the door and I cried Mm. for the two hour session and shared my story all out crying. It was amazing. And I remember, uh, yeah, some of the comments people made and that was another support system I wanted to put in place before the partial hospitalization program. So that when I came out, I knew my best friends would be there. I knew I had faceitfoundation.org to help me. And I knew my sister, my brother, who was living overseas as a, a family doc, and he helped me out tons through my depression, but trying to build that level of support. And like you said, with people who can really empathize and really understand and get down there with you yeah, is critical. I started a meetup group, the depression session meetup.com, because I found that doing the show me just hearing other people's stories and then having to, having to tell a little bit of mine every week has helped helped me immensely. And it's yeah. it's not like everybody wants to tell their story to the world. And I realized what if there was a group where people could just talk about their depression? They could just tell yeah, their story. Awesome. And almost every meeting there's someone who spends a good portion of it crying. <laughs> even right, if they say right. nothing, even if they don't chime in a single word there's something so comforting of being around people who know what your experience is. Like yeah, from the exactly. Out. That's, that's the point of the support groups, I think, too, right? Yeah. Like it's so much easier to make yourself vulnerable and share with people that you know really get it and yes. have been there and have been through it. There's something about that that just makes it so much easier and to trust them. Yes. For me, walking into the men's support group, they had all of my trust and that's why I could cry in front of them, share my story in front of them. For me, it was instant trust. Um, I think like three quarters of the way through, I was like, this is confidential, right? (laughs) (laughs) Um, But I I really didn't care. And I didn't want that two hours to end. It was amazing. You know, so a lot of men in that group say the hardest thing they ever did was to walk through the door of the support group. And for me, it was like, that was the easiest. Once I was there, like, it was difficult for me to call the founder. Uh, my best friend had told me about him, and it took me probably two weeks to call this guy who all he does is work with men with depression. But walking through that door, which to me was like relief. Like here's a whole room full of guys that get it yes. and will get me. Well, that is a perfect note to end the show on. Al, thanks so much for being on the depression session. Yeah, thank you again for having me. Uh, I love the, the work you're doing. Thank you. I want to mention again that if you found some of the content of today's episode triggering, please seek professional help and call 911 if you feel like hurting yourself or others. 
I'm not a licensed therapist, and this show and the station are not endorsing any remedies or products. The purpose of this show is to destigmatize depression through storytelling. You can find a link to mental health services on downtownradio.org on the About KTDT page. To listen to the podcast, or if you're interested in being on the show, contact us at www.thedepressionsession.com. You've been listening to The Depression Session on Downtown Radio Tucson with music by Septa Helix. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at The Depression Session Podcast. Thank you.